Well, good morning, everyone. I see you survived uh, the lesson yesterday. Glad to have that, <laughs> that you survived here. And today we're in uh, our second day of boot camp. And this time we're going to be talking about the history of our regiment. When you go into the military and you get into a branch of the service, no matter what it is, one thing that they will teach you, if you get assigned to a certain regiment, you learn the history of that regiment. There's a sense of pride in that. If you are, for instance, in the Army, say you get assigned to the 7th Cavalry, that still is the 7th Cavalry, um, you will learn what they did in the American Civil War, the battles that they fought, the glory that they received in these battles. You'll, you'll read about what they, they did in Vietnam. Some of the uh, one of the greatest battles in Vietnam, one of the greatest American victories, was done by the 7th Cavalry. Of course, they don't use horses today like that. Today, the 7th Cavalry moves its mechanized warfare, so they use you know, vehicles and helicopters to move instead of horses. If you're in the 1st Marine Division, you'll learn what they did in World War II. Whatever branch you go in, you learn the history of your regiment. And some of these regiments go back, in some countries, centuries they go back. And you get a sense of pride. And, you know, it's like when you have this, like, oh, my regiment went up on Mount Sarabachi and raised that, uh, uh, that flag uh, at Iwo Jima there. You know, it sends a pride that, boy, you guys can, can do things in battle. You can fight battles. You can win battles. And it's an important thing to understand the history of our regiment. Today we're going to take a look at that. But, you know, in, in looking at these kind of things, we also... We also have people who fall, who have given the ultimate, the highest price. We're going to talk about some Medal of Honor recipients. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you can go on the internet and you can type in, there's a couple different places like this, you can type in the Medal of Honor recipients and you can read and see a listing of all the Americans who have won the Medal of Honor, who have who have received that great award. And what's really cool in a couple of these, one in particular, I can't remember exactly what the address is on the internet, but it's really interesting because it tells you the bio of the person and even what was the action, what did they do to get it? Like you, if you type in, or you go to this, you find like Sergeant York. I don't know if you ever heard of him. They made a movie about him back on in the uh, 1940s. Uh, Gary Cooper played him. Um, Sergeant York was a, a phenomenal soldier. He was uh, in the American Army during World War I, he didn't even want to fight. He didn't believe in killing. Yet, he captured like a whole regiment of German soldiers. He only killed a few, and he captured them all alive and saved hundreds and hundreds of American lives in exposing himself um, to get uh, in a position where he could have the advantage over the Germans. It's a phenomenal movie. If you ever get a chance to watch, if you like old classic movies, I'm telling you, it's, it's called Sergeant York. It's one of the best films you'll ever come across. It's phenomenal, and it's a true story. And it also talks all about his Christian faith because he was a Christian and how he even came to the point of staying in the military because he thought he took the, the um, Ten Commandments literally like uh, in the King James Version where it says thou shalt not kill. He took that as being kill anything is the way that he took it. Of course, a lot of people struggle with that. You know, why does the Bible say thou shall not kill? Well, actually, if you take, if you take a look at the word for kill uh, in the original language, it's murder. Thou shall not murder is what that actually says. If you've ever been puzzled by that, that's what it is. If you get puzzled, 
Go back, study the Word of God, look at it in some of the original languages and stuff like that. You'll learn a lot of stuff. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. Because as I told you, we have an adversary that is very powerful. He is very smart. He knows your weaknesses. He will exploit your weaknesses. He has a lot of people helping him. And we're going to be looking at some of these things today of how God, how our army, the army of God, has fought against him and has won some tremendous victories. But in doing this today, we're also going to, we're just not sitting here thinking, oh, wow, we're going to be learning all these history stories. No, 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 no. We're going to take some familiar Bible stories about the army of God. And the thing is, it makes a difference to each one of us. We can apply something here, and we need to apply to our lives every day. So as we get started with this, let's open in prayer, and then I'll start explaining. Father, we thank you so much for this time we have, and I just ask now again that your spirit would do the teaching here. Just move among us, Lord. Teach us what we would have to know. And Lord, when we have to make changes in our lives, I ask that your spirit help us to do that also. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Don't underestimate our adversary. Satan is a fallen angel, the highest ranking angel ever created. He is not more powerful than God. He can't do anything against God, but he can hurt and destroy the thing that God loves the most, and that's you. And that's what he's after. He is your enemy. And he's very wisely described by Peter in 1 Peter 5.8. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Peter knew. He described him very well. I think that's a great illustration of who Satan is, who our adversary is. He is like a hungry lion on the prowl looking how to attack you and how to bring you down. What is so unfortunate today is that many Christians think, wow, I'm saved. Okay, I don't have anything to worry about now. I can just go live my life any way I want. Uh, wrong. That is not what Jesus taught. That is not what it says in the Word at all. Jesus said, hey, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you make yourself known, as you all should if you're a born-again Christian, you will be attacked. That's a promise from God. God never promised you if you become a Christian, you just walk on rose petals the rest of your life. On the other hand, there's a lot of thorns you're going to be stepping on as you go through life. Satan will make sure of that. I will say this probably again sometime this week, but this is so important. If you claim to be a born-again Christian, and you are having no problems, you are sailing under a good stiff breeze and just on the coolest, uh, smoothest waters, you might want to check something. You might want to check how is your relationship with God. If you're having no difficulties, if you're not being persecuted in any way whatsoever, you might want to check because this is just a possibility, it's a strong possibility, that maybe your relationship with God is not where it's supposed to be. Because maybe Satan does not perceive you as a threat. I can tell you from experience. I became a Christian when I was in eighth grade. And I can tell you, Satan attacks me frequently. Yesterday, I was being attacked very heavily. He will attack. But if you're not being attacked, if you're not being bothered by Satan, it's very possible you're no threat to him. He doesn't see you as a threat. It's the people he sees as a threat he puts in his crosshairs on and he starts taking aim at. And according to Jesus, that's the way we should be living. Well, let's take a look at this. I want to show you some really cool battles from a different perspective. Now, we all know the Exodus story. We've all seen that historically accurate movie, Prince of Egypt, right? 
I love how they take movies like that, like Pocahontas. Oh, yes, that is so accurate. Woo! Yeah, there was a person named Pocahontas, and it did occur in North America. Outside of that, uh, talking raccoons and stuff, I don't think so. But in this case, the Exodus. Now, if you've watched like the Ten Commandments or any of these movies, forget the movies. Study the Word of God. I mean, you can watch, I've watched the movies, but usually I, I can't hardly watch movies like this. I know there was a movie that came out just recently. It wasn't on Moses or something. Moses, King of, what was it? Dreams. King of Dreams. And everybody who knows me really well, a lot, of people, a lot of my friends went to see it. And then I asked them, what do you think? Should I go see that? And they said, Michael, do not go to this movie. And I'm like, why? What's the matter with it? You will, it will drive you nuts. And he, the Noah one that came out a couple of years ago, I got warned by, I've never seen that one. I've never seen the Noah movie either because everybody who knows me well says, do not go to see this. It's going to drive you crazy. Because what I will do is I nitpick things like that. If it goes historically off the Bible, I get really upset. So in other words, I get upset at Christian movies quite often <laughs> because they're often going way off the Bible. Well, the Exodus, let me ask you a question. What did Moses ask Pharaoh to do? To do what? You're correct. To let my people go. To do what? I'm sorry? Anyone? Yes. To go to the promised land. That is the most common answer. Unfortunately, that's not accurate. But thank you for asking. I'll tell you, or answering the question, I admire that. And being wrong is nothing wrong with being wrong. I like, I mean, that's how you learn. Yeah, I know you know the answer. <laughs> what he wanted to do, what he said to Pharaoh, let my people go that we may worship God in the wilderness. That's what he asked for. It had nothing to do with the promised land. Pharaoh was never told by Moses that we want to leave and never come back. Don't believe me? Go back to Exodus, read it carefully. You will see he never asked that. He always asked wanting to go into the desert, into the wilderness to meet and worship with God. That's what he wanted his people to do. So Pharaoh was under the impression they're coming back. They would come back. Even after the Passover, they go. And after the Passover, of course, they're all now, the Israelites have got this mindset that they're leaving Egypt. Pharaoh's not told that. It's not that Moses lied. He just didn't fill them in with all the truth. He just didn't tell them that. He just said, we're going out to worship, which was exactly what they did. They, God took I mean, God could have done all of this there in Egypt, but no, he took them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. It has two different names. And, and brought them there, basically, in a way, married the nation of the Hebrews. The Jews viewed this as a marriage contract, and that's how it was viewed. So they leave, and they, of course, they go out. Now, let me give you a little background that you don't find in the Bible, but other historians, ancient historians, not modern ones, but ancient historians tell us about Moses and Joshua. If you go to a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, he lived about the time of the apostles. And the thing is, he was um, uh, actually um, paid by the Romans to write the history of the Jewish nation. He was a general, he was very well educated, and he wrote the history of the Jewish nation. And in his history, he, tells, uh, he writes of Moses as being raised in the family, in the court of, uh, in the house of Pharaoh, which the Bible says that, but he was also the general of the Egyptian army that Moses actually is the one who conquered for Egypt, conquered Ethiopia. And the story goes that as he was 
attacking the capital city of Ethiopia, and he was riding in his gold chariot across the plains. The daughter of the enemy, the, uh, the king, the princess of Ethiopia, saw her or saw him riding his chariot across the field and was smitten with love with him. So impressed she was that when Moses conquered the city, he married this girl. And the Bible does mention that Moses had a previous wife to Sephora. He, he did. And this is who it is. It's an Ethiopian princess he was actually married to. But Moses was a military commander. That's the point I'm trying to make here. He was a military genius, according to Josephus. He was brilliant. Joshua also served, apparently, according to Josephus, in the Egyptian army and was also a commander in the Egyptian army. Though he was a foreigner, they, the Egyptians still did that. Now, with that type of background, God directs. Remember, God is the one who's choosing where they're going to go. Remember this sort of pillar of fire and a, a cloud, a uh, pillar of cloud that leads them where they're supposed to go. And they take them, uh, God takes them to this place here that you see. This is the Red Sea out here, the Gulf of Aqaba. And this is called Pi-Hariath, which means the mouth of the gorge. They walk along this dry riverbed through here. This is Pi-Hariath, the mouth of the gorge. And this is a large beach. These buildings that you see over here on this photograph that I'm showing, these are actually hotel resorts. There's an airport down here also. Um, it's a, such a large beach. That's what this is. It's a huge beach. You can actually see it from outer space. It's the only beach I'm aware of that you can actually see from outer space. It is that big. And you have all these Israelites coming. The only way to in here is this. The only way out is through the same entrance. Now, Moses, being a military leader, has got to be wondering this, and I can't help but Joshua thinking the same thing. As God leads them, he takes them through here and has them come to a dead end. You notice there's no bridges here. And there was not during that day either. Back in 1450 B.C., you don't see any bridges. Uh, there's no ferries cutting the, across here. But God leads them onto this beach. And then, after he gets them there, you've got to be thinking. I mean, if you know anything about military tactics, is this a wise place to go? It's the stupidest place to go. Because you've got no place to run to. And then someone yells, hey! The Egyptians are coming. Pharaoh, it says in Scripture, Pharaoh gets word that the Israelites are not coming back. And then he goes out after them. There's a long span of time. I know in the movies it shows like one or two days. No, it was probably weeks. And then Pharaoh takes off, follows their track, coming through here. Now, have you ever wondered, and I used to wonder this when I was a kid, if you recall in the story, God blocks the Egyptians from coming by a pillar of fire in the way of the Egyptians. If they're out in the middle of the desert and just have a pillar of fire, why don't they just go around it? But if you put a pillar of fire right here, you could block off the whole army. History shows many times, if you take even a small contingent of soldiers, put them in a small, narrow gorge like this, even if it's only like 300 Spartans, you can hold off hundreds of thousands of the enemy. Thermopylae was like this. If you study Greek, don't, don't go to the movie. That 300 Spartan movie, uh, yeah, get, that is not accurate whatsoever. But anyway, um, these, if you block this off, the Egyptians get piled up back here, they can't come. And that's probably what happened, because this is the place, I believe, where this all took place. The uh, Israelites are here, ah, the Egyptians are coming! So God moves the pillar of fire from one end, comes around and blocks right here. The Egyptians can't get in. Now you've got to be thinking, the people, they start complaining to Moses, why did you bring us out here? You're supposed to be some military commander, what are you, an idiot? Why did you bring us here? Questions like that, I'm sure, were going through the minds of these Israelites. 
And look at Exodus 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. I bet they did. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. It's amazing. Why weren't they crying out to God beforehand? Why does it always take a disaster to turn us to God? But that's what's going on. Now, God, do you understand something, too, that's so cool about this? That beach was made not just for at this event. God made this beach centuries before in planning this whole thing out. He created that beach there so that they would have to come there, that it would all be set up. He had this, set, this stage set centuries before to teach us today a lesson. You keep reading and you get to verse 13. This is, if the people are crying out, this is God's answer to them. Exodus 14, 13, and 14. Fear not, stand firm. You're going to see this a lot this week. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Now, here's the important part. If you've got your Bibles open and you're taking notes or whatever, here's what you want to mark. You only have to be silent. You just wait for God. God is very dramatic. He is. Don't believe me? Read the Bible. He is dramatic. He likes to make an entrance. He likes to, to show his power, his glory, which he deserves to do. So he tells them, just be silent, which is exactly what they're not doing right now. They're all crying out to God. Be silent. Just watch what I'm going to do for you guys. Just, just watch this. And of course, we know how the story goes. But stand firm, be silent. The two commands that God gave these people. Two things. If you got your Bible, circles. Stand firm, be silent. That's the command that God uses to lead us to victory. He is in control. Don't ever miss that. God is in control. Remember, this has been his plan even before the Egyptian empire because this beach he created specifically for this case. In Exodus 14, 28, it says, The waters returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Wow, God wiped them out. What was the condition? To stand firm, be silent. So the people feared the Lord. Look at this next verse, verse 31. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Why did God allow them to be brought to a dead end? Why did God allow them to be so scared and stuff? He tells us right in his word. This is what it was. The people believed in the Lord. They feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord. That's the lesson that we are trying to learn here with this, this victory. Is that when you are following God, you notice they were doing what God told them to do. They were following God. He will sometimes purposefully, purposefully lead you into a dead end. This is what Scripture teaches us. When we are walking close with God, God will sometimes, on purpose, take us to a dead end where we cannot see how in the world we're going to get out of this problem. No apparent avenue left. And He does this to get you to trust Him, to fear Him, to believe in Him. I got injured this past December 31st. I was taking out the trash. I shredded my bicep muscle when I threw the bag in the dumpster. I tore the muscles off the top of the humerus bone. Um, I just ripped them right off. And so I had to have all this reconnected, 
the muscle reconstructed, had a lot of work done, and still recovering from it. But the thing is, I got a note from, uh, well, it happened here at work, so there's a type of insurance called workman's comp that's supposed to pay for if you get injured at work. Our workman's comp here at Fort said, we're not paying it because we don't think you could get that hurt doing what you did. You're trying to scam us. So my primary care, and I'm in a lot of pain and hurting here, my primary care insurance that I carry, they said, well, we'll pay for it. So they paid for it. And then about Family Camp 3, this is Family Camp 8, Family Camp 3, I think it was, I got a letter from my insurance covered, and they said, we just realized that this is a workman's comp claim. You got hurt at work. We're not paying this. So now they took back all their money that they had paid the surgeon, the hospital, and everything. And now I was issued a bill for $48,000. And I was like, well, I don't, hospital's asking, where's our money? The doctor's asking, where's our money? Physical therapy, where's our money? I don't have $48,000. Now, my wife got a little freaked out by this. She's like, where are we going to get $48,000? I said, don't worry about it. We don't have it. If we don't have it, don't worry about it. I said, let them try and squeeze a turnip and get blood. They're not going to get it. You, you just, I just don't have $48,000. I can just fork out like that. I don't have $48,000, period. So what we do, she said. I said, we're just going to trust God. I said, we don't have the money. He does. $48,000 to God? That's not even petty cash. I mean, that's nothing. So I said, we'll just sit back and wait for him to handle it. I told her, don't lose any sleep. There was a couple of nights she was pretty worked up and couldn't sleep. She's up walking around. I go, what's the matter? She says, I can't get the, all these bills. How are we going to pay these bills? I said, hon, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of us. We're doing what God wants us to do. He's brought us to a dead end. Just don't worry about it. Go back to sleep. Sleep good. God's in control. Don't worry about it. About two, three weeks ago, finally got a call from the workman's comp people. And they said, we're sorry. We understand this was work-related, and we have to pay this. And so we're going to pay it all. See, God brought me. God didn't have to do it that way. He could have had workman's comp pay it right away. But no. Instead, he has this disaster. He brings me to, to a dead end. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons is because I'm doing what God wants me to do, and I'm doing what Satan doesn't want me to do. And so um, it's a spiritual attack. And God uses things like this to teach us. What my wife learned a little bit more, and I did too, to trust God more, to fear God, that's a respectful fear, and to believe in him. Yep, that's one reason you go through things like that. Let's take another one. Jericho. I talked about Jericho a little bit yesterday. This is an artist's conception of what Jericho looked like. I told you yesterday it had two walls going around it. By the way, the mud in this area is pink. Jericho was a pink city. It really was. It's got a pinkish hue to it. So um, if you like the color pink, move there. Of course, it's like in, in the daytime in May, it's like 110 degrees just about outside, but it's, it's really hot there. But anyway, this City was conquered by Jericho. Now, this, or by Joshua. This was the first city that they came in. Moses is now gone. Joshua is the leader. He's led them in battles already. And so he's the military commander. He's got generals and stuff too in the Hebrew army as they come here. They cross the Jordan River. By the way, the Jordan River, the Bible tells us at that point was at flood stage. It was probably about a mile wide. It wasn't some little creek, about a mile wide. And you can see the Jordan River from Jericho. I, I was just there. I can tell you. You can see the Jordan River from there. And 
so back in these days, they saw the floodplains, and they're thinking, well, our gods are going to protect us from these Israelites, and then all of a sudden the waters part, and the Israelites walk across. Woo. If you think waters can't part like that, that's a myth. Oh, really? In the 1920s, John Garstang, an archaeologist, was working here at Jericho, and that happened. There was an earthquake up north by Galilee, northern part of, the, of Israel, and it caused a landslide which blocked the river, and the river dried up. We also know during the time of the Crusades, the Jordan River dried up at one point because of an earthquake. The river stopped flowing, and the Muslim army was able to cross. The Crusaders thought they were safe. The Muslim army went across because the river dried up, and they went across. It does happen. God can control stuff like that, too. Well, this city was conquered. Now, imagine what it was like if you were a general here getting ready to attack the city. First of all, it tells us in Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Now I want to point something out to you. Jericho is not that big of a city. It's only about 30 acres. It's not very big. It's a small little city. It wasn't the most powerful city. It's just that it was the first one the Israelites were going to conquer when they came in. And there's a lesson here for us also. God is telling the Israelites, he's telling the Hebrew nation, he's telling us, whenever you get something, some gift, some reward, some payment or something, the first part belongs to God. It's called the first fruits. Maybe you've heard of a first fruit offering. That's what this is. When the Hebrews grew gardens and stuff like this, the first crops to come out were brought to the temple and given to God. When they would get a paycheck, when they got paid for something, the first part of that paycheck went to pay a tithe to God. Today we sort of do things incorrectly, according to God. We'll get a paycheck, we'll go watch a movie, we'll go rent this, we'll go get some food, we'll go out to eat and stuff. And then when we get down and we start thinking about you know, the little bit we have left, okay, now I'll give some to God. That is not the way we're supposed to do it. God is illustrating that we give always the first part. When you get a paycheck, if you're working a job, when you get a check, you, God tells you the first part of that belongs to him. What do you do with it? Do you give it to him, or are you using his portion? This is called the first fruits. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament also. This city was the first city they got. They weren't allowed to sack the city. They had to burn everything in it. They left it as a sacrifice to God. It belonged to God. And that's what he was illustrating. God is teaching them this principle as they go across. Now, can you imagine the Israelites asking Joshua as they're standing here, okay, Joshua, how are we going to attack this thing? You know, I'm a general, say, like in Joshua's army, commander, how are we going to attack the city? Should we make a bunch of arrows? We're going to, you know, start shooting flaming arrows in there. Should we go out and get some trees and, and cut down trees and make battering rams? You know, how are we going to attack this city? What's going to be our plan? And what does Joshua tell him? Joshua gets his battle plan from God. What does Joshua tell him? I love this. <laughs> Joshua 6, 3, 4, and 5 says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, everyone straight before them. You understand what's going on? Let me put this in, in other terms. Joshua was having a meeting with his commanding officers. Okay, how are we going to attack the city? What are we going to do? Okay, I want you to get all your men, get all their battle armor, everything, weapons shiny, everything all polished, sharpened up. 
we're going to have a parade. We're going to do what? We're going to have a parade. <laughs> what kind of parade? Well, we're going to have some trumpets. We're going to blow some, you know, you have a parade. You've got to blow trumpets. We're going to go around. No one says anything. Are we going to shout and yell at them? No, no, no. We're not going to say a word. We're going to parade around the city. Then we attack, right? No, the next day we're going to do another parade. Huh? Well, what about the third day? Oh, we're going to do another parade. What are we going to do, a parade for a whole week? Precisely. <laughs> then what? How do we conquer the city? Well, on the last day, we're going to walk around it seven times. We're going to parade around the city seven times. They're going to be yelling and screaming at us. Yeah, that's okay. We're going to be silent. Until the seventh time around on the last day, we're going to walk around this thing, we're going to blow the trumpets, and then the walls are going to fall down. When we blow the trumpets, all the walls will fall. Then we go in and we kill all these people who are rebelling against God. Because that's what they were. They were rebelling against God. If you've ever wondered, why did God command these people to kill these Canaanites and stuff like this? He didn't order them all killed. Do you remember the story of Rahab and her family? They changed faith. They, they, these Canaanites in Jericho and all through the land, they knew who God was. They didn't want to follow God. And they said, we're not going to believe you, God. We're not going to have you as our God. We're going to stay with Baal and Asherah and all these others. And God said, he'd put up with it for a while, kept giving him time to change, and now the time of judgment came. And he says, okay, anybody who turns away from me, their judgment has come. And you cannot let them live because they will turn you away from me if you just live in among them, which is exactly what some of them did. But that's what it was. God didn't kill them all. And I hate when people say, well, God ordered the, the, you know, all these Israelites to kill all these people when they came in. No, he didn't order all of them killed. Rahab is a great example, and her family, why did, were they spared? Because they chose to believe and worship God. God honors that. Make a study sometime. Do a study, Bible study of all the people in the Old Testament that were Canaanites, Philistines, Hittites, etc., that changed and followed God. God honored them every single time. He never killed them. Anybody turns to him, God accepts them. People often miss that part of the story. So that's what they do. The whole point was this. I mean, this is ridiculous. These generals got to say, Joshua, you're nuts. This doesn't make any sense. No, the whole point is this. We need to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. God will put you in situations and he will ask you to trust him even though it's so illogical and it doesn't make any sense. That's what he's wanting. He will sometimes put us in front of our adversaries, ask us to do the weirdest things. We don't argue with him or wait for him to explain. God, did he explain to, the, these, uh, to Joshua and these generals what's going to happen? He didn't tell them what, what his plan was. He just said the walls are going to fall down if you just do what I say. We're simply supposed to trust and obey. Sometimes God will do that to you. And today, evidence has all took place. There's tons of evidence that I could show you here. This is a house in Jericho. Um, you can see pottery and things like this around. I showed you yesterday some ash. I'm going to turn off the light for a second and let you see this one picture I took here. You see this black circle down here? Mud brick walls here. But down here, there's a black circle. And there's another black section over here. This is a large wooden beam. Huge beam, support beam. It's burned. It says in the Bible, Joshua burned the city. And as I told you yesterday, they found all sorts of burnt grain and everything in there, exactly as God told them to do it. Let's show another victory from our commander-in-chief. This one is really cool. Sennacherib's invasion. This is 
King Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians. The Assyrians conquered basically most of the known world. They were the most evil culture ever to exist on the planet. Assyrians, Sennacherib made Hitler look like a pussycat. He made Stalin look like a little puppy dog. I mean, Sennacherib was evil. You just can't even imagine how bad these Assyrians were. Nineveh was their capital. That's King Sennacherib there. Um, people coming and paying tribute and stuff like that, worshiping him and stuff like that. As you can see, he's sitting on the throne. Well, this is recorded. His invasion in history is recorded in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. And we're told about this amazing army that he assembles. The Bible doesn't describe the whole thing, but Sennacherib did. He wrote about and had chiseled onto and, and written on clay um, all about this invasion when he's going to go out and conquer the world. Let me show you a little bit of what he wrote about this army that he's going to take from Nineveh and conquer the world with. Never before had such a mighty army been mobilized. 45,000 princes, those would be generals, riding in golden and silver chariots led the way, followed by 80,000 knights in armor, 60,000 swordsmen, more than two and a half million fine cavalry made up the rest of the army. When this took place, this was the largest army ever assembled in ancient history. This thing was gigantic. They started in Nineveh, which is present-day Iraq, and they came all the way over to Egypt. They went up into Turkey. They conquered all through Israel. They conquered basically everybody. They never lost a battle. They were ingenious. They were also extremely evil. There was a psychological warfare about this. Sennacherib, the guy who was doing this, captures almost every great and small city in the entire world. Even the great city of Lachish. I know most of you probably never heard of Lachish. It's a, a city about 30 miles to the west of Jerusalem. It was the strongest city in Israel. It, was, it sits on a high hill. It's got two massive walls around it, very heavily fortified. It's a phenomenal thing. And Sennacherib was so proud of his conquering of this city that um, he had a mural in his palace made of the whole battle. This is an actual photograph I took of this mural showing this is the, one of the towers of the city of Lachish being knocked over by an armored battering ram. The Assyrians invented this. You can see Assyrians, they have these conehead hats here, shooting arrows. These are flaming arrows coming into the city. These little blocks are sling stones, and they, they tumbled the city and they crushed it. When I was just there a few weeks ago, I took my group to Lachish, and I showed them, even though it was high on a hill, the Assyrians built five ramps to be able to wall, uh, push their battering rams up there to knock the city walls down. Those ramps are still there to this day. And if you were to go looking around in there, you'd probably find arrowheads all over the place, bronze arrowheads from the age, because this was such a major battle. It was the most fortified city in all of Israel, and it was conquered by Sennacherib. He personally saw the destruction of this. While this is going on, he's conquering other cities too. I mean, he has a huge army. But let me tell you, the people who died in the battle were the fortunate ones. The survivors were stripped naked. Some were filleted. They were staked down by their hands and feet, tied to the ground. And then they took sharp knives and they literally peeled the skin off of them alive. That's what the Assyrians like to do to their, their captives. They would fillet them. Some were impaled on poles. These are actually Jews from Lachish. This is part of that mural. These are Assyrian soldiers. Notice they've got these guys impaled on poles. The Assyrians invented crucifixion. These are dead bodies, though. 
You can tell they're dead bodies because the way that the pole is inserted inside the rib cage. Some of these poles were 75 feet high. When it talks about hanging, if you ever read the book of Esther, remember Mordecai and Hanan? Hanan hated Mordecai was going to hang him on a 75-foot gallows, it says. That wasn't hanging like with a rope. This is what he was going to do. This was, it was impaling is the way it's, it, it, what it's meant there. That's what they did to dead people. Live people, they strip you naked, lay you down, spread your legs apart, and they shove this up your rectum. Then they lift you up on a pole. You live about two to three days like that before you finally die. They did this to men, women, and children. They took the captives of Lachish, and they made bronze fish hooks. They put it through the lower part of the jaw, coming out through their tongue, and walked the people back to Nineveh naked, and about every mile or so down the road, they would stop and impale, crucify a person along the way, a live person like that. That was the Assyrians. We also know that the Assyrians covered the walls of Nineveh, this, their great city, with human skin. The city had trees. All of the trees had human heads. These were the Assyrians. Do you get an idea why Jonah was a little afraid now to go to Nineveh? and say, hey, God's going to destroy you guys because you're bad. That was the city. Well, can you imagine what the people of Jerusalem thought when they looked out one day? Lachish has fallen. Sennacherib then sends a contingent of his soldiers, about 185,000 of them, we're told, to go to Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. As I've already told you, Jerusalem is not that heavily fortified. It's not that big of a city. It doesn't need a huge army. Lachish was the big battle. So he sends out. 185,000 troops. Could you imagine getting up in the morning and looking out over the walls of your city and there's 185,000 of these heathen, evil people around you sharpening the poles for crucifixion? What would you do? Now, the thing is, this is when King Hezekiah was the king of Israel, of Judah. If you know anything about King Hezekiah, he was a good king. It says in the Bible, he followed in the ways of David. Do you know what Hezekiah did prior to this invasion? He told the entire nation, get rid of all your idols. To have an idol is breaking the law. And you will be punished, you'll be excommunicated from our country if you worship any idol. Break down any place that you are using for worship, we're only going to worship at the temple. He instituted God's reforms. He did everything he possibly could to have his country follow God's direction. So how did God reward him, as some people would say? He has Sennacherib come. The people in Lachish had destroyed all of their idols. They had turned to God. God let Lachish fall. I don't know why. Don't ask me that. No one knows. God sometimes calls people to pay the ultimate price. And for the citizens in Lachish, that's what he did. Did they do anything wrong? They were worshiping God. And now the people in Jerusalem, they're worshiping God. So Hezekiah, what's he do? It says in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went into the house of the Lord to pray. He actually went and got the prophet Isaiah to come with him, and they go into the temple and they pray. God, what do we do? We've done everything you've asked us to do. Save us. You get down to verse 35, this is what God's response was. And that night... The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. God wiped out the entire army. Sennacherib had to turn around and leave. Remember, this is an army that never had been defeated. And after the fall of Jerusalem, well, he didn't, 
after he tried to have Jerusalem fall, which he couldn't do it, Jerusalem defeated him. He lost his army, he goes back home. The thing is, people often say, well, there's no way 185,000 people would just die overnight. I used to teach microbiology. There's things called bubonic plague. There's things called black death. There's things called meningitis. Easily can wipe out an entire army that size overnight. That is not impossible. How God did it, I don't know, but I'll tell you, I know he did it. And people will say to me, well, you know he did it. You're just quoting something out of the Bible. That doesn't mean I have to believe it because you have no evidence outside of the Bible saying that really happened. Oh, really? You come with me to Israel sometime, I'll show you this. It's in the Israel Museum. It's called Sennacherib's Prism. This is Sennacherib's account of this entire invasion, how we know this army and stuff and everything. And he says right in here, he did not conquer Jerusalem. He lost his army. You have archaeological evidence that this is true. Here we are again. Amazing, huh? Let's very quickly just look at some Medal of Honor winners. Because sometimes God calls you to pay the ultimate price. You can get a great book. You can download this free online, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It tells you all about the early church and the sacrifices that the Christians went through simply because they believed Jesus was the Son of God. There's a modern one called um, Jesus Freaks, the Book of Martyrs by DC Talk. Excellent book. Phenomenal book. I don't know if anybody's ever read it. That's a great book to read. Either one of these. I'm going to show you some quotes right now out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Let's just take a look at some people who were followers of Jesus. That was their crime. And look how they got paid. These are people who are walking close with God. Look what happened to them. James, the brother of Jesus, at the age of 94, he was beaten and stoned by the Jews. Finally had his brains dashed out with a club. Matthias, he's the disciple who replaced Judas Iscariot. He was stoned to death in Jerusalem, and then they cut off his head. James, the son of Zebedee, it's recorded in the book of Acts, he was beheaded. Philip, he was crucified in 54 AD in a city called Heropolis, which is in modern-day Turkey. This is one of the saddest stories. He had four daughters. They lived at Heropolis. In Heropolis, there was an arch, and it says to walk into the city, you walk underneath this arch, and it says all who pass under this arch acknowledge Caesar as God. Philip and his four daughters would never walk underneath that arch. The people of the city finally got so upset with him, they, they arrested him and his four daughters, stripped his four daughters naked. After raping them, they crucified them before his eyes, and then they finally crucified him. What was their crime? They believed that Jesus is the Son of God. These people were walking close with God. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified on an X-shaped cross. You had Bartholomew, another disciple. He was cruelly beaten and then crucified in India. You have Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He was hanged from an olive tree in Greece. You have Simon, another disciple. He was crucified in Britain in 74 AD. You have Mark, the guy who wrote the book of Mark. He was dragged to death behind horses in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. You have Timothy, who Paul loved, and it was his, his favorite convert, and who headed up the church in, in Ephesus. After doing a sermon, he was taken and beaten so badly, he died two days later. You have Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. He was burned alive because he was a Christian. You have Eustachius, a brave, successful Roman commander, who was ordered by the emperor Adrian to crucify Christians at Mount Ararat. But being a Christian himself, he would not do it. Enraged at this denial, the emperor then forgot all of the popularity and the service that this general had done for him and ordered him and his whole family to be martyred. They cut off their heads, even his children. 
Felicitas, she had seven sons whom had, she had educated with the most exemplary piety. Januarius, the elder's elder son, was scourged, whipped in other words, and then pressed to death with weights. They put a board on top of him, kept putting weights until they crushed him. Felix and Philip, the next two, had their brains dashed out with clubs. Silvanus, the fourth, was murdered by being thrown from a precipice, a high place. The three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Martial, were all beheaded. And then, after they were beheaded, right in front of their mother's eyes, the mother was beheaded by the same sword. Or how about Felicitas and Perpetua? Two young married women. They were stripped naked in the Colosseum, ordered to be thrown to a mad bull. The bull made his first attack on Perpetua, hit her, didn't kill her, stunned her, and then it darted at Felicitas and hit her, gored her dreadfully, still didn't kill her. Finally, the executioner came out with a sword and cut off their heads. What was their crime? They were Christians. They were even given a choice. We won't do this to you if you will deny Christ. They would not deny Christ. All these people we're talking about here. Sanctus, he was a deacon of a church in Vienna. They stripped him naked and they took plates of bronze and brass and heated them in a furnace so they were just glowing hot and then they started placing these on his body till he finally died. Cilicia, a young lady from a good family in Rome, was placed naked in a scalding bath. They boiled her, but then at the end they finally just cut off her head. What's the crime? Being a Christian. People who are walking close with God. What would you do if somebody put a gun to your head and said, you claim to be a Christian? Deny Christ or I'm going to blow your brains out. My brother and I taught in the Bahamas. The Bahamas, believe it or not, is one of the few Christian nations still on the planet. This happened back in the 70s. My brother made some enemies of some people who were not Christians. One day, he decided after school to go to a Kentucky Fried Chicken to get some supper. He drove, not knowing he was being followed. He goes to the Kentucky Fried Chicken, walks inside. He's the only person in the store. He goes up to the counter, just like any one of you would do, standing there trying to make up his mind what he wants to order. Young gal behind the counter. There's a couple of cooks in the back. That was all that was in the store. The guy who followed him came in. My brother was oblivious to this because he came up from behind, grabbed him from behind, threw him up against the wall, put a gun to his head and said, okay, Christian, deny Christ right now or I'm going to blow your brains out. What would you do? He said, I will not deny my God. You're going to have to shoot me. The gal behind the counter yelled out at that point, I've called the police, they're on their way. If you want to get out, get out. The guy panicked and ran. My brother, though, would not deny Christ. I was one time coming home from school when I was in high school. I met four guys, not from my high school. There were four adults waiting for me because I was very vocal about my faith in school. And they were waiting for me in the parking lot one day. What was my crime? Being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you were with these people during the Roman time, if you were accused of being a Christian, you'd be brought before the emperor. The emperor would ask you, are you a Christian? If you denied, he let you go free. If you said, yes, I am a Christian, he would ask you a second time. He would do it this way. Okay, I'm going to give you one more chance. If you say that you're a Christian, when I ask you again, I will torture you in the most hideous ways until you die. Yet, if you will deny Christ, you can go free. 
what would you do? I know it's very easy for us to sit in a chair and say, boy, I know I would not deny my God. And there have been people like that. Remember the whole story with Columbine? Some of the kids there, the two guys were singling out Christians at one point. One girl in particular, because she was vocal about her faith. And they killed her before it. What type of relationship do you really have? Are you really a Christian? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe this doesn't pertain to you. My prayer is that you guys realize right now, if you never have, that you need to be saved. This Bible is true. You will be condemned to eternal death, but Jesus loves you so much, He took your place in death. All you have to do is accept the free gift from God. Your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then I pray that you all would have the courage, if someone comes up to you, because I tell you, it probably will happen to some of you. It happened to my brother, it happened to me. That people have called us out. Will you be able to stand up and say, yes, I believe in Jesus? And if you have to, pull the trigger. Can you do that? What's your relationship really like? Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had, and we just ask now that you would just bless our day. May your Holy Spirit continue to work and teach on us, Lord. Lord, I, I pray that each one in here will evaluate the relationship that they have with you. Is it real? Are they truly following you? Are they truly born again? Are you really the Lord of their life? Or are they just carrying you like a badge and take it off when it's not convenient? I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room follows you closely all the days of their life. And maybe some you will call to, to win a Medal of Honor. I don't know. But I pray if it happens to any of us in here, Lord, we will be proud to say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Keep them safe this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks.